Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, by the way, the writer of 13 books of the New Testament, and the final book that he wrote in the book of 2 Timothy, he writes something very interesting. He says in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. And Paul continues on a few more verses, and he says, here's the charge, Timothy. Timothy, you're overseeing these church plants. You're, you're with a congregation on a Sunday morning. What are we supposed to do? Do we show the latest movie? Do we dissect that? Uh, what do we do? And Paul says, Timothy, here's what you do. It's real simple. You preach the word, right? You explain the scriptures. Now, when we hear that, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And you think, yeah, I believe that, all of it, but what about Leviticus? What about um, 15 chapters in Exodus that talk about the building materials of the temple? Can't I just kind of skim through that? Uh, or how about the book of Chronicles? First Chronicles, the first nine chapters, name after name after name, and you think, well, I believe it. But all of it, even the hard parts and the easy parts, and I would say, yes, all of it. Uh, one Jewish scholar said this. He studied all the Old Testament stories in depth, looked at every detail, and he said this, quote, There is not one detail that is wasted in any of the stories. They all contribute to the message of the writer. And I have to say that our passage today, can I just confess this? This passage today could be easy to skip over move on, flip the page, and keep reading in another section of the Bible. But the treasures of Scripture, uh, finding them is compared to finding a treasure you would find in, you know, real life. You got to dig down. You got to sweat. It takes some time. And if you've seen me, I'm already sweating, so we might as well uh, dig in this morning. We're going to camp on seven verses here in Exodus uh, chapter 15, but as a way of reminder uh, the beginning of this year, we started to work our way through the book of Exodus, not skipping any passages, but we worked our way through, and then we stopped in May. We took a break for the summer, and we pick up again, but if you weren't here every Sunday, um, if you're not sure the context of the points we're going to look at today, let me just catch you up real quickly. Um, what has happened so far, the Israelite people, when you open the book of Exodus, they're enslaved. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. At the end of chapter two, they cry out for help, as any good slave would, right? Help. When is this going to be end? When, when is it going to be over? When will it end? And God hears their cry. God raises up a man named Moses. Not a perfect man by any stretch. In fact, he murdered somebody. Just put that out there. Uh, it's in the text. So not a perfect man, but a man that God was going to use nonetheless. So these people are crying out for freedom. They finally get free, right? We read about the 10 plagues, all these miraculous ways God delivers his people. And when we left off in May, 
in Exodus chapter 15, starting at the beginning there, I just want to read you a couple lines from this song they're singing, right? Because you're free. I can't believe it. We're free. We're not slaves anymore. No more slavery among our family members, which was a very big family, by the way. It says, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, here's some of their song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. This is my God. I will praise him. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So that was the men singing with some women. And then the women say, hold on. So it's just the women. And they get a tambourine out. And it says it in the text, uh, verse 20, says the women go out led by Moses' sister, and they're dancing and singing, and Miriam, Moses' sister, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. They're saying, hey, our enemies are defeated. God, this is amazing. You did it. These folks are on a spiritual high. They're so excited, so encouraged, and maybe you've been on a spiritual high. Maybe you've been on a mission trip, uh, maybe it was the moment of your conversion. It's like, ah, this is amazing. This is real. Jesus is real. The gospel is true. And he has changed me. Maybe you've went to a Christian conference, or maybe you've just had coffee with a friend, right? And you've talked about spiritual things, and the caffeine's starting to kick in, and you're so encouraged until you get home. Or you get back from the mission trip, and three, four days go by, and you start to feel a little let down, a little bummed out. And so our passage today is sitting right in the context of this spiritual high, this moment of freedom, of excitement. And so today I want to look at three ways that God deals with his people, okay? So they're coming off of their freedom. And so let's look at verse 22 of chapter 15. This is what happens. It says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So the first way God deals with his people is God deals with his people in his time. Think, man, why can't we find water the first day, the second day? Uh, well, we're still at three days and they found no water. Let's just pause for a moment and say, you know, God's timing is not influenced by your day planner. God's timing is not influenced by how stressed out and how rushed you want to be. In fact, if we just pause for a moment and think about these Israelites in Egypt, God's timing is incredibly slow from our perspective, right? It's been hundreds of years. God has the guy he's going to raise his people up out of slavery, but the first 40 years of his life, speaking about Moses, He's on the other team. He's on the oppressors. He's enjoying this lavish life in Egypt, but that's the guy. All right, well, soon he's got to be raising us up, I'm sure. But God then, after Moses, like I said earlier, he kills someone. So he flees to the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years. Yet God is not wringing his hands. He's not sweating. It's all in his perfect timing talk about time, talk about God's timing. Um, 
you think about this journey that we're beginning, right? This is really the on-ramp to get them out of Egyptian slavery, on the path to freedom, eventually to the promised land. This 40 years is going to take up the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It takes time, God's time. And even when they finally get to the land, they're going to have a period of time where everyone does what is right in their own mind, a disaster, several centuries, and then another thousand years passes, and then Jesus arrives. This is so foreign to us. It's so hard for us to understand because God's timing seemingly is so much different than ours. I remember as a kid, there was a song I was taught. I can't remember all of it, but it basically said, um, be patient. Don't be in such a hurry. And I wonder if everything in our culture today doesn't just make us do the opposite. Everything is so instant. I don't even need to give you examples because it's just everything around us. Whenever we want it, right away. And if it's not right away, how can it be? Well, I looked at different verses about waiting in Scripture. The people in our text today, they've waited for three days for water, but a couple that come to mind, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says this, it says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You think, man, I love that. I love the endurance. Let's go. No, first you have to wait. James writes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmers wait for the precious fruit of the earth. Second Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter writes, he says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, which righteousness dwells. Time and again, Scripture calls us to be patient. Adults, kids, everyone. Patience. Now back to our text here, verse 22, they've set out from the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, they go three days in the wilderness, and they find no water. They've waited long enough, and if you remember when the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't have a whole week to plan and get the canteens full and pack all the clothes you want for the trip. It was a really abrupt departure from their slavery and we see three days have passed. Now, as, as a point of uh, interest, there are many times in Scripture, three days happen. It's kind of a time of testing. We see Jonah is in the belly of a great fish for three days. It's kind of a decisive moment. What's going to happen? Am I going to die in this fish? Am I coming out of this fish? What's going on? Um, Paul, in his conversion, for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. And even Jesus, he said, just as Jonah was three days in the heart of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And, you know, Bible scholars and commentators, they have all these great thoughts about three. But I can tell you, if you were telling the Israelites who were really thirsty, you know, I could tell you the history of all the stories of three. I could spell three in Hebrew, Egyptian, Aramaic. They'd say, I don't care. I'm thirsty. Don't let the facts get in the way of the fact we need water. Now, medical news today says as a general rule of thumb, a person can survive 
without water for about three days. So don't try it at home. Kids, hear me clear. Drink water every day. Obey your parents, okay? Eat your vegetables. So don't try to go without water. But remember, again, we're dealing with the people that are living on the edge of survival every day of their life. And so when they get here to verse 23, what do these people do? They come to these waters. They come to Mara. They couldn't drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So just three days ago, singing, dancing, God, you can do it all. We trust you. We believe you. Nothing is too hard. And yet for the third day, they're looking at Moses saying, what's going on? Trying to kill us? We're out here in the wilderness. We found this water. We've got no hope. Similar to three days, Jesus is in the tomb and his disciples and everyone is thinking, there's no hope. It's over. It's done. Everyone complains, every dealer, uh, every dealer, every leader deals with complaints. Some are legitimate. But I got to say, to really sympathize with them, imagine you're taking a trip all the way out west. It's day three. You look at the car. It says you've got three miles until your car is out of gas. There's no gas station in sight except one. Yes, let's fill this car up. But it doesn't have the gas that fits for your car. You're thinking... I have no idea what we're going to do. You're going to be extremely frustrated. Expectations are there. We're going to drink. These expectations are not met. They grumble. One Bible commentator says this in regards to this testing of these people. It said, God was testing his people, not because he didn't know their hearts, but because they didn't know their own hearts. Our hearts are tested and revealed, not in the winds of life, but the losses. So how they really felt about Moses, what they really believed about God's provision, if he can or maybe can't provide, is revealed here by the fact that they grumbled. So when the tire is flat, the job is lost, you haven't slept in 65 days, not that you're counting, it really reveals where your hope lies. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. And I know every Disney movie tells you to trust your heart and follow your dreams, but I got to tell you that the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, so who can understand it? So we see here even this idea of them grumbling. They say about grumbling that when you complain to someone, 90% of people, they don't care. They just don't care. The other 10%, they think you deserve what you're getting. Just putting that out there. But grumbling and complaining, it is a poison. And I say this not as someone looking down. I say this as someone who, spending several months looking at this text, is deeply cut to the heart saying, man, when I complain about fill in the blank, is this helping anyone? And I don't mean you can't share the struggles of your life with someone else. You can't ever say what's wrong, but just grumbling for grumbling's sake is really uh, sharing your burdens in a way with other people that is, isn't helpful, and it really reveals more about your heart than anything. Well, these people, like I said, this is the beginning of a 40-year journey. Uh, even in the book of Numbers, 
Uh, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book, they're still in the wilderness. And this is actually the Lord speaking to Moses in Numbers 14. The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and says, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of Israel, which they grumble against me. You think, well, what about Jesus? Being with him, wouldn't that just be so perfect and wonderful? There would be no grumbling and complaining then, would there? Well, in John 6, this word comes up again. Jesus has fed a multitude. Their bellies are full, but then Jesus starts teaching, and people don't like the teaching. And it says, many of his disciples heard it, and they said, this is a hard saying, Jesus. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling, about this said to them, do you take offense to this? Maybe you don't grumble. Maybe, and that's wonderful. Um, but maybe others around you do, and you just know how intolerable it is. But it is a problem throughout human history. And before I continue to grumble about others grumbling, let's continue on in the text. Um, verse 25, we see the response of Moses. They're annoyed. Uh, and so Moses, what does he do? It says he cries out to the Lord, right? Our reflex often when someone is annoyed at us is to go right back at them. Instead of crying out to God, we want to lash out at that person, at that group of people. But Moses sets an example. He cries out to God. And time and time again, Moses will cry out to God because he will be with these folks for 40 years years in the wilderness. Well, here we are, uh, this text here. Um, Moses cries out. So what does God do? God shows Moses a log, and he throws it into the water. Now, some Bible commentators say that it's not, don't think of like Moses hacking down a tree and then trying to get a big chunk and throw it in. It's probably more like a branch. He's ripped off the tree, and he throws it in the water. It says, and the water becomes sweet. So the bitter taste is gone, and these people are like, hey, this water is, they don't say that, but they're going to drink it now because it's not bitter. Um, but we have to ask a question here. Bitter waters being made sweet. And just a few verses later, we see God leading these people to Elim, where we have lots of water, lots of shade. So what is the point of this instance here? Um, sometimes it's easier to get insights into things that are happening in scripture because we live in Ohio and this happened far away at a different time. Uh, so there are some folks, here's a theory I'm going to throw out there to you, okay? I think it's pretty warranted, but I'll give you a couple examples of why bitter, why sweet. Uh, Jamie Buckingham, an expert in desert conditions, wrote a book entitled A Way Through the Wilderness, he writes from his journeys that the water of Mara was filled with magnesium, which is a powerful laxative, which would have expelled most amoeba parasites and death-dealing germs the people would have brought with them out of Egypt. Magnesium also forms the basis of a drug called dolomite, which is basically used in extremely hot weather to control heart fibrillation and muscle spasms. God had provided the right medicine to purge their systems and prepare their bodies for the long, arduous journey through the text. That's one possible cultural insight. Another 
person who has lived in these lands, spent considerable time there, says you can take one teaspoon of the water that is calcium and magnesium and you put one teaspoon in your mouth and swallow it. It won't kill you, but it will cleanse your system out. God didn't just bring him there to, bring the, to drink the water. He just got Egypt. He got them out of Egypt, and now he's trying to get Egypt out of them. We see here that God gives them what they need, not necessarily what they want. So this first stop here in the wilderness three days in is a place, not just a random, what is the point of this, but this is God providing for them and their needs when they may not even realize they have this need. So something in our life we need to ask when seemingly bitter life situations, our lives are led there, how do we respond? Is it first saying, I don't know what God is trying to teach me through this, or man, this is bitter, I'm just going to complain, but yet everything that comes from God's hand, bitter, sweet, painful, joyful, it flows out of his perfectly good character. It's easy to say, it's harder to live, but it is the truth. I want to give you just a few living illustrations of bitter made sweet. Um, one of these illustrations is The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read this book, if you haven't, you need to read this book. It's a phenomenal book written about the journey of the Christian life, but a man named John Bunyan was imprisoned for at least a dozen years, and out of his imprisonment, he wrote this book. So the bitterness of prison produces the sweetness of God's truth as seen in this book. Richard Wormbrand, if you've ever heard of Voice of the Martyrs, it puts a spotlight on Christian persecution that happens all around the world. Out of 14 years in jail in the communists of Romania, he spent three of these years alone in a cell 30 feet below ground. He didn't see the sun, the moon, the stars, flowers, or snow. He never saw anyone except for guards that would occasionally come down and beat him up. And he said every night of his time, 30 feet below ground, he said, every night I pass the hours in spiritual exercises and prayer. My soul fed upon Christ. So this bitter, why, God? I don't understand. It's to get closer to him to be more near and dear to his Savior. Or how about Johnny Erickson Tata? You might recognize that name. The bitterness of her at age 17 in a swimming accident, she became a paraplegic, and she's still alive today, over 50 years living in that condition. The bitterness of a life-altering disability. This is what Johnny Erickson Tata says about this bitter illness, this bitter she says, my weakness, that is, my quadriplegia is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. And what a perspective. Or how about Joseph? You read in the latter parts of the book of Genesis, everything goes wrong for this guy. His brothers sell him into slavery. He's in prison for years. And at the end of it, he says, you know, you guys meant all of this for evil. But God, he meant this for good. How can you be so optimistic when things are so depressing, when hope seems like it has faded off into the distance? 
The only way you can believe that and live that way is because you believe that God is at work in your life. You can play the victim when injustice comes, or you can say, God is sovereign. I don't understand it. Doesn't make sense to me, but he is good, and I trust him wherever he leads me. Think about a couple more quick examples, but the apostles, right? You read the book of Acts. These guys are beaten. And in one instance, they're beaten, and then they go back, and they're like, wow, they rejoice. They're excited. We were worthy to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. The bitterness of pain and suffering only made sweet because God is in the midst of your situation. Paul and Silas, they're singing hymns in jail. They're in chains. That's when it's like, we got to call our defense lawyer. We got to figure out a way to get out of here. Nope. They're saying, God, I'm going to praise you even in the midst of chains. But why? Why all the bitter experiences in life? Sometimes, you know, I read the news, I'm having a good day, and then I just read the headlines, and then I'm having a bad day. It's just so depressing. It's so discouraging. I don't think humans are meant to know all this depressing stuff all at once. And maybe you say, I don't know if I'm convinced about the goodness of God. I don't really understand. I'm going to read something from you, uh, for you, from our friend Richard Wormbrand. Remember the guy I just read, underground three years, treated horribly. He actually came to the United States. He testified in front of Congress. He took his shirt off so they could see all the wounds and the beatings on his body. Yet Richard Wormbrand, right? If anybody has the license, the blank check to say, I'm bitter, this is what he says about suffering. He says, quote, even the best of Christians are troubled by the question, why does an almighty God send or at least allow suffering? He says, when you are nagged by thoughts like this, say to yourself, I am still in elementary school. When I graduate from the university of Christian life, I will understand his ways better and doubts will cease. So when it all doesn't make sense to you, ah, you're just in kindergarten. We still have a lot to learn. There's still so much we don't know. One more. Warren Wearsby writes this. He says, in our pilgrim journey through life, we live on promises and not explanations. When we hurt, it's a normal response to ask why, but that is the wrong approach to take. For one thing, when we ask God that question, we're assuming a superior posture and giving the impression that we're in charge and God is accountable to us. God is sovereign and doesn't have to explain anything to us unless he wants to. Asking why only assumes that if God did explain his plans and purposes, we'd understand everything perfectly and feel better. So we leave the unknowns to a holy, perfect, loving God, even when we don't understand. So God has dealt with his people in his time. It's been three days, brings them to this water. He brings, he deals with his people by his tests, even the testing of why they're in the wilderness, what they're doing. And finally, the third way God deals with his people is through his instructions. So if you look at part of verse, the last part of verse 25, it says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, 
give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. He's saying, listen, if you want this to go well, you have to listen to me, okay? I know all about what you need, what you don't need. I know everything, and you need to trust. And yet, even in this moment, the Ten Commandments haven't been given. The 613 laws that are found all throughout the first five books of the Bible, those have not been given. But even the simple, wherever I lead you, and if you're to drink, you drink. If we stay here for a week, we stay here for a week. If we go, you follow me. He's saying, diligently listen, give ear, keep all my statutes. And he says, I will put none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians. So that could, this could very well have to do with the cleansing that just happened at Mara and in the days to come. He's saying, follow me, follow me. So what happens? They finally arrive to Elim, right? Verse 27, they come to Elim, which brings us to the end of chapter 15. We've got 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they camp there. You notice they didn't hang out real long at Mara. You just don't put down your tents at a place that a little iffy. Uh, but here we see palm trees, refreshing, some shade, some cool water. They're finally camping out. Now we see Elim and Mara, different as day and night. All of life can't just be a bunch of bitter situations. If that's happening all the time, you're going to want to quit. Not all of life can be never sleeping through the night, always dealing with conflicts, always having problems. That would just suck the life out of us. But also dealing under palm trees, fresh water every day, it doesn't seem bad to me, but I'm told it would really make you soft, right? It would really just not stretch us. It wouldn't show us our need. We wouldn't be crying out to God nearly as much. But we see here that the journey is just beginning. So a couple of thoughts as we finish this up. Uh, we need to, first of all, remember how quick we are to forget what God has done in your life. These folks, just three days ago, singing, dancing, they had witnessed firsthand all these miracles that we read about, and yet how quickly we are to complain, to grumble, and we need to stop. We need to stop that. I need to stop that. We need to trust in the faithfulness of God. He has a perfect track record. Uh, he is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the father. We are the kids. Um, unfortunately, uh, I'll tell you, as you continue to read through the Old Testament, you'll see this people uh, later described as a stiff-necked people. They don't want to go this way. They don't want to go this way. They want to do their own thing. And I got to tell you that um, years go by, they get into the land, they have a season where they're just doing whatever they want. Uh, God says, I'll be your king. And they say, no, we want to do our own thing. We want to have our own king. And basically, every way they can turn away, they turn away. God says, go left, they go right. God says, don't build these idols. Don't worship what the pagans do. And they said, great, I've got three of those in my cart. I'm checking out now. I'm going to buy those idols. It's not everyone all time, but that does characterize this people as a whole. 
Years go by, the Messiah comes, right? Jesus, the Christ, the eternal Son of God, comes. And even he wasn't good enough for many of them. He didn't meet their standards. They want something different. They want something different. Well, God's plan for these folks wasn't to have them die three days into the journey next week. So today it's water. Next week it's food. Interesting to check that out next week, their reaction to God's dealing with them. But if I could sum all of this up today, it really comes down to a matter of trust. Do we trust God's timing or do we want everything to fit in our schedule on our time? Do we trust the tests in our life as coming from the hand of God, or this is just one more annoyance that I have to deal with? And then also, do we trust his instructions that what he has said in his word is true? No ifs, ands, buts. There's got to be a way I can get around this to do my thing. Well, this morning, our trust often is revealed that it's, it's not in him. It's in our own selves. It's in our own circumstances that are ever-changing but ultimately, our trust in this life must be his, him, in him and in his hand. But ultimately, for eternity, which will last much longer than this life, even the people we read about this morning, these events happened 3,400 years ago. Their wilderness journey is long gone. But for us, where should our trust ultimately be? Yes, it needs to be in the hand of God, the timing of God. But ultimately, ultimately it needs to be in the one who was never rushed. You read about Jesus, never in a hurry, never rushed. All the obstacles he dealt with in life perfectly, and he kept God's law perfectly. So we trust in the one who's never complained, the one who's never grumbled, the one who never failed once in any area of life. Our lives are so wobbly, we're so up, we're so down, and if you're trusting yourself, it's going to be a mess. So we fix our eyes upon the one who knows all, who sees all, and who ultimately is good. So I pray we would trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we are so uh, blessed in this country. So many luxuries and comforts, yet not without heartaches and frustrations. God, I ask that in all of us here, Lord, if we know Christ, that we would rest in him. Father, that we would rest in your timing or give us a peace, a calm that can only come from you and just simple trust. Lord, and if there's anyone here who isn't trusting in Christ, Lord, may they realize their great need because of their sin that has separated them from you, Lord, and they would trust the one who has obeyed you perfectly. Lord, I also pray that you would bless this meal we're gonna eat, that it would just be a sweet time of fellowship as we just celebrate you. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time you've given us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.